Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you guys all here. You'll need um, Isaiah 56 open as we are looking at that. We're coming to our last few sermons in our, in our great sermon series on Isaiah. And uh, straight after this, uh, after our sermon series on Isaiah, we're doing a sermon series on sex and relationships which is not controversial at all. So, um, you know, just a boring sermon series on that. But uh, you might want to pray as we think about that, as we, as we pray about that. Just uh, one of the things that we love to do is give away great books that will help you uh, as a Christian. And today we're talking about what does it mean to be one of God's people. And it me- one of the things that means is our lives reflect that we're one of God's people. Um, the way the New Testament talks about that is holiness, right? And this is probably the, great, the best book on, on, I think, personal holiness I've read. It's by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness, Filling the Gap Between Gospel Passion and the Pursuit of Godliness. If you're a, if you're a person here who's a Christian and you want to learn how to be, uh, to be, I guess, more increasingly godly, this is a fantastic book. It's free. I'm going to put it down there on the front pew. You can just grab it afterwards and uh, please read that. How about we pray as we look at God's Word? Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. You would speak to us wherever we're at with you, uh, whether we've got huge doubts or we don't know whether you are even here or whether our faith is strong in you. Lord, wherever we're at on that continuum, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning and that we will be changed as we encounter you in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my dad was Danish. That's where I get the Hans Christensen from, which is the ultimate Danish name I've been told. But because he worked outside um, in the hot Maury sun, he had a very dark tan, a very deep tan. And I can remember um, going to school in Maury. I was hanging out with a lot of Aboriginal kids. And one of them said to me, so I didn't know that you were half-caste, meaning that I didn't know you were half-Aboriginal. And I was like, oh, no, Dad's Danish. You, you know, I'm not Aboriginal, right? And, he's, and they were like, what about your dark skin? Dad's dark skin, you're really white, he's really dark. And I was like, I, I didn't know how the sun worked in tanning. I was just like, I don't know. And then one of them said, oh, Hans, I think you're adopted. <laughs> and I was like, adopted? Yeah, because your dad has got dark skin. You haven't. My dad's got dark skin and I've got dark skin you're probably adopted. And so that was the thing. I was like, I'm adopted. And so a couple of days later, I plucked up the courage to go to my parents and I said, when are you going to tell me that I was adopted? And they were like, what are you talking about? And I said, look at dad's skin. He's very dark. I'm white. My friends, my friends, their dads have got dark skin and they're dark. They're not adopted. I'm obviously adopted. And then they all kind of laughed at that. And then, then my mum got a mirror. And she said, look at your dad's eyes. Look at how blue they are. And look at your eyes. So you've got the same eyes as your dad. Look at your dad's knees. Because my dad had kind of like camel humps for knees. Look at your knees. You've got the same camel hump knees. Look, look at your nose. You've got the same nose as me. That's what mum said. We've got the same nose. 
And she pointed out different things and she said, you, you, are, you are part of this family. You are not adopted. You are our, our child. And, it's, and you may not have the same skin tone as your dad, but everything else screams that you're a Christensen. Now, I want to ask you this question. How do you know you are actually in the family of God? How do you know you're one of God's family? Many people would say very different things. They would say, well, well, if you've been baptized, you're part of God's family, or you're a member of a church, you're part of God's family, or you pray to prayer, you're part of God's family, or there's many other answers to that question. But, but today, I think Isaiah is actually getting to this reality. How do you know you're part of the people of God? Because what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at Isaiah 40 to 55 um, is we've seen how God saves his people. And now in Isaiah 56 to the end, he's not only talking about the great hope that we have, but all the way through, he's actually talking about what does it mean to be God's people? And so we're going to look at this passage and answer that question. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see God's standards, God's call, and God's promise. God's standards, God's call, and God's promise. And I hope that by the end, that if you are here and you, you do follow Jesus, right, that you are one of God's people, it will become very clear to you. And you'll be encouraged to follow him more and live out that life that he's called you to live. And if you're here and, and today you come to the end and you go, I actually, I don't think I am part of God's people, that you would speak to someone today. Don't walk away from here not finding a way to become part of God's people. So with that in mind, let's have a look at God's standards He's, here Isaiah is speaking to a bunch of people, probably 200 years, maybe 300 years after, after he was around. He's in the 8th century, but he's speaking to people two to 300 years who have just come out of the exile. And here's what he says to them. Actually, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Two things that they're meant to do, maintain justice, that is, treat everybody with fairness and and treat people with compassion and love and do what is right. Maintain justice and do what is right. But why? Have a look once again at verse 1. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will, will soon be revealed. He's saying God is coming soon, so what should you do? You should live in expectation. In fact, your whole, your whole life is meant to be a billboard for the fact that God is coming back soon. He, Isaiah is saying, you are a living sign of the future. So therefore, live it out. And he's actually saying God commands that your faith is not just something skin deep. That because you, you know him your hearts and your minds will be changed. That's what he's demanding. And he goes on in verse 2. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, 
and keeps their hands from evil. Now, now notice in verse 2 where it says, blessed is the one who does this, who holds fast. Those two wor- words in the original are verbs of continuing action. What that means is, it's not that you just do it on a Sunday. It's not that you do justice and you're good to people just on a Sunday or whenever you feel like it. No, this is a continual thing that your life is marked by doing right, by maintaining justice. But then he, then he goes on and says, here's what you should do specifically. Keep the Sabbath. The one day that you're meant to have of rest, that's what you're meant to do, Israel. And it kind of seems weird. You, you get and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Okay, we shouldn't do evil, I get that. But why, why the Sabbath? Here's what I think here. I think there's two things. Firstly, if you ask the average Aussie, right, just come back from ancient Israel to now, and you say, keep your, keep your hands from doing any evil. You ask them, well, what's evil? Well, there might be a bunch of different opinions of what is evil. You, you ask a person, hey, maintain justice. Do what is just and fair in every situation. Well, well, people will go, well, what is just? Or they may have different answers. But here he is. God is saying, keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath showed you that you were part of the covenant, God, uh, covenant uh, people of God. And therefore... What it is to do right and and do justice, what it is to avoid evil is defined by the God you are in covenant with. That is to say that you and I don't get to decide what is just. You, You or I don't get to decide what is good or evil. It is God and we follow in his footsteps. He is the lawgiver. We are the law keepers, so to speak. And so here he is, God is saying, if you are part of God's covenant people, what will you do? You'll be just. You will do the things that I command you to do and you will not do the things that I command you not to do. Now, here's the thing. I dare say there's some of us who are saying, actually, hands, for the last few weeks, in fact, from the whole Bible, we believe, the, doesn't the Bible teach that we are saved by grace alone? That is what Jesus has done. God has saved us through Jesus, and therefore we're not saved by, by what we do or what we don't do. And, and this passage, and what you're saying, it sounds like the opposite. Saying like, uh, to be a Christian, I've got to do stuff. I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying, and that's not what I'm saying at all. If you, if you remember the whole book of Isaiah, let's take a really quick trip through the whole book of Isaiah. In, in chapters 1 to 39, God presents the case, amongst other things, that Israel has totally destroyed their covenant with God. They have done everything wrong, and they have broken it in every way. And so what does God do? God sends a suffering servant, as we heard in the kids' talk. From 40 to 55, we meet that suffering servant. And God saves his people through that suffering servant. So you've got unrighteousness, 1 to 39. 40 to 55, God saves his people. And now in 56, he says, because you are saved, now you live this way. 
because you are saved, now you live this way. This has always been the way in the Bible. And I want, I want to show you that by flipping back to Exodus chapter 20. Keep your thumb in Isaiah 56, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus uh, chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? You know, and I talk to people and, you know, they say, oh, you know, they imply they don't need God, why? Um, or I don't need to come to church or anything. Why? You're a good person. Okay, why are you a good person? Because I keep the Ten Commandments. And I go, well, what's the Ten Commandments? They're like, um, see no evil, hear no evil. do." And I, no, I think that's Monty Python, not the Ten Commandments. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, here's the Ten Commandments. Notice what he says. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up, sorry, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods by me. Did you see where it starts? He is saying, I have saved you. I, I am the Lord that has saved you. Exodus chapter 1 to 15, God has saved them. Exodus chapter 20, so therefore live. All the way through the Bible, that's what God does. He saves his people and then he says, here's how you're meant to live. Why? Because that is his pattern. Everyone in the Bible is saved by grace alone and yet saving grace is never alone. Or another way, as Martin Luther put it, you are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. You are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It always is accompanied by a transformed life. Why? Because if you know the Lord Jesus, you've been impacted by his love. And when you're truly impacted by love, you will change. I remember Don Carson, a, a scholar preacher, telling a story. I think it was a, of another scholar named Edmund Clowney, but I forget if it was Edmund Clowney. But, but, this, but this particular scholar used to take in uh, foster children, foster children. And there was one time he, he, he took in two boys who were brothers. And they, were, they came from a really bad uh, neighbourhood. They had uh, just kind of messed up every foster home that they were in. And this was kind of like they were told uh, that this is their last hope. You guys are their last hope. If they mess up here, we're not sure what, what we're going to do. That on the first night, as this, uh, this professor and his wife were going to bed, they heard sobs coming from the boys' room. And they, they went in, and they were obviously crying. And the boys had their, their, their whole pillows wet with tears. And so the professor and his wife said, oh, what's wrong? You know, and they said, well, we're really, really scared because we're a bit bad today. And we thought you were going to come and beat us. They said, of course we're not going to do that. We love you. We're here for you. And over the next weeks and months and years, this couple showed love towards these children. And in time, these children got adopted out to a loving couple who didn't have any other children. One of them went to the Olympics for athletics. The other became a world-renowned surgeon. Their lives totally changed. Their behaviour totally changed because they encountered great love. If you are a Christian today, you have 
been, you, you have encountered great love, the ultimate love in the Lord Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. You've encountered that great love, that gracious love through faith. But saving faith is never alone, even though you are saved by faith alone. Does your life point to the fact that you've been saved? Do, like Isaiah, the people Isaiah is preaching to, he is saying your life is meant to be a billboard saying that God is coming soon. That was pointing forward to the first coming of Jesus. Your life, if you follow the Lord Jesus today, is meant to point to the very fact that Jesus is going to come back and that everything is different, that your life is different. And can I tell you one way in Sydney that you will, that you will show the world that your life is different? Here's how by resting. Here, in the first two verses, it talks about Sabbath. We don't hold the Sabbath. Our Sabbath rest is Jesus. But it is still a great thing to have a day off. It is a good thing to have a day of rest. But we live in a city that is always going. That is always, We're all crazy, crazy, crazy busy. And I feel like a hypocrite talking about this because as I was thinking about this this week, I was like going, I actually need to work out how I can rest more because there's so much of my week that I'm going, 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 going. If it's not through the week where I'm working so hard, maybe I take work home on the weekend, then it's kid stuff. I, I mean, isn't it good that we've got school holidays and so we can have a break from Saturday sport? But some of us feel like we're taking, we're, you know, we're a taxi service for our children on Saturday and Sunday. We're going from one thing to another, to another, to another. And the rat race from uh, our work may be finished, but the rat race on the weekend is on, on, in hyperdrive. And yet God is saying, I think all the way through the Bible, that you can rest because you're a saved people. You can rest because you are not defined by what you produce or what you earn. You can rest because you are a saved people. In Deuteronomy 5, read it later, Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath rest is a reenactment of the exodus from Egypt. In Deuteronomy 5, what Moses, well, God through Moses is saying to his people, you are saved so you could rest. You are no longer slaves, so you could rest. It is saying to them, you are no longer slaves, but free. So when, when an Israelite rested from all their work, they are declaring to themselves, it is a practical reminder of their freedom. And it's the same with us. Taking a day off is a declaration of your freedom. It is saying that your boss and your work aren't your gods. That you're turning your iPhone off for a whole day means, guess what? My iPhone is not going to be the thing that defines my life. Talking to your boss and saying, guess what? I cannot put in these hours because it is taking time away from my family. It is taking time away from my church. It is taking time away from my life. 
is actually standing up and saying, I am not your slave. Some of you, some of you guys are like me. You guys are working crazy hours. And what we need to do is be reminded that we're not the slaves of the jobs. Even if, you, if you're like me, you love your job, right? I'm not saying you should hate your job. I'm glad that you love your job. But one of the ways we show in Sydney that we are sons and daughters of God is by taking rest, by stopping work at a reasonable hour, by spending time with our family, by sometimes even binging on a Netflix show. Because as you binge on the Netflix show or whatever you are declaring, guess what? You are free. You are free. Does your life and your work habits show that you are a child of God or does it say that you're a slave of the company that you work for? And it's really quiet in here, isn't it? Because I think there's a lot of us who need to take this on. God, first of all, says, hey, your standard is, or God's standard is, that you live a life in response to what I have done. But secondly, he actually goes on and he says, he talks about his call, God's call. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. But both foreigners and eunuchs were considered second-class citizens in Israel who couldn't come into the temple. And here Isaiah is saying, in God's family, both foreigner and eunuch can come in. The foreigner can't say, oh, he will exclude me from his people because through Jesus, all people are welcomed in. The eunuchs can't say, I'm just a dry tree, a tree that can't reproduce anything. No, you are also welcomed in to being part of God's people. This openness to the outsider shows that God's people is not meant to be a legalistic community, but one that shows grace to the excluded, to the broken. But what does it look like for the eunuch and for the foreigner to be saved? Have a look at verse 4 with me. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Just like like anyone else, the, the eunuch who comes to know God, their life is meant to reflect that they know God. And what will God give them? A name. So, see, eunuchs could not reproduce and so their name could not go on. And yet here God is saying, your name will go on forever. In the book of Revelation, it says the people who follow God will have their names written in the book of life. Think about the Ethiopian, sorry, the Ethiopian eunuch we read about in Acts chapter 8. Here is a guy who could not have kids, but guess what? Millions upon millions, if not billions upon billions of people have read about him. Why? Because he put his trust in the Lord Jesus. Even though he couldn't have kids. Imagine if he was able to have kids. 
his family line might have forgotten about him very quickly. But from now until into eternity, people will remember him, the Ethiopian eunuch, because of his trust in the Lord Jesus. For the rest of eternity, his name is written in the book of life, even though he is so deformed, so broken. But what about the foreigner? Verse 6. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love of the name of the Lord and to keep, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and, and who hold fast to my covenant. Same thing. If you're a foreigner, what do you do? How do you show you're saved? By keeping the covenant, by keeping, by doing what God wants you to do out of great love for him. Once again, it's, they are not saved by this. They are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. The beautiful thing here is this. Here we see a God who will open his doors to everyone without distinction. doesn't matter if you're a foreigner. God one day through Jesus is going to open those doors. And aren't we recipients of that? I'm not sure if Isaiah was looking forward into the future and he was thinking of a bogan Aussie, the son of you know, uh, an Aussie woman and a Danish, Danish man coming and being part of God's people. But I am a recipient of this. But also the eunuchs coming into God's family shows that your life can be thoroughly broken and totally messed up. And yet God is throwing his arms open wide to you. I remember at Moore College once I was overhearing a, um, a child talking to their mum. And they're like, oh, and the child said to their mum, what does God do all day? It's a great question, isn't it? What does God do all day? And she thought about it. And here's what she said. I'll never forget this. She said, God welcomes broken people in and fixes them. That's what God does. God forgives people and slowly but surely he fixes them. Uh, And isn't your life and my life evidence of that? That God welcomes broken people in like us and he fixes us slowly but surely. And if we want to be a community that sees a flood of people come to know Jesus... We are going to welcome people that aren't like us, people that have gone through life's ringer, people who are broken and messy, and it's going to be hard. But that's who we are as a church, because just as in Jesus, God's arms were flung out wide to us to welcome us in when we were broken without hope. That's what we do for other people. And can I, can I tell you, that's going to be messy. There's going to be times when, when we don't know what to do because we're dealing with other people's brokenness. When we're going to be dealing with other people's sin, it's going to be hard. But yet that's what we're called to. When we say we want to see a flood of people become Christians, I hope you realize that we're not saying, I hope we want to see a flood of people who have got their lives together in every single way, just come and be more religious. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, 
please God, send us people who have made messes out of their lives so that they can find wholeness in Jesus once again. That's what we're saying. And can I just say, over the last six months, I have seen this church do just that. I'll speak in very vague terms about this, but, but I just want to encourage you with something. Um, towards the end of last, uh, well, for the last few years, I've been uh, helping a friend out who, because of his own choices and his own uh, situation in life, he's really messed up his life in every single way imaginable. He's a Christian. He loves the Lord Jesus. And, he, and I said, you should start coming to this church and can I just say I was a bit nervous because of where his life is at and, you know, just his personality. I wasn't sure how we as a church would welcome him. But I can remember the first Sunday he came, well, I caught up with him that week. And with tears in his eyes, he talked about, especially the men who went out of their way to love him and talk to him. And he talked about how he felt valued as a human, how he felt loved. And I just thought, doesn't that just show that the Spirit is moving in this place? That a man who's obviously messed up his life and even came to church intoxicated can find the love that he's looking for here. That here's a community of broken people reaching out to another broken person. And that's what we want to see over and over and over again. We want to see a flood of broken people come to know Jesus and find their forgiveness, their life, and their healing right here. Just as God calls those people, just as God calls us, we want to call them too. But let's finally look at the last, the last point, God's promise. Have a look at verse 7 with me. It says this, these people, the eunuchs, the, the foreigners, what does he say? These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exile of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. What benefits to these people who, come, who hear God's call and come to him? What are those benefits? There's three of them. First of all, did you see how they can pray to God that, that there's no blockage here? Jesus has flung open the gates so that you and I could pray to God. And did you notice we pray with joy? We pray with joy. And I will give them joy in my house of prayer. That's the first thing. The second thing, their sins are atoned for in verse 7 once again. The burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. It looks forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus makes that is acceptable so that our sins can be dealt with and atoned for. And finally, these verses talk about God gathering all people together. That one day around the throne of the Lord Jesus... People from every tribe and tongue will be gathered to sing of the fact that he has saved them. Here's God's promise to you and to me. Have you taken hold of that promise? That, that, that call of God that invites you in to have your sin forgiven, to be able to be in relationship with God and to be part of God's covenant community at the end. Have you accepted that? Because that's the invitation for you and for me today so that 
we not only will be saved, but because we're saved, we will live a life that is different. Our lives will show that we are saved. God has created us and God has saved us. One of my favorite stories I've ever heard is about a boy who at Christmas time he gets a, a, a yacht, you know, one of those kind of yachts you've got to glue together and put together. And he's blown away by, by, by this, uh, this yacht thing that he's got to put together. And he says, look, this, the kitchen table is mine for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to put this together. Over the next couple of weeks, he puts it together slowly and surely, painstakingly. He paints every little bit. He's very detailed. He loves this yacht. And then what he decides to do, he decides to go down to the local river. And he... Uh, puts it in the river and he steps back and there's this freak gush of water and it just is taken away and he can't get it, it just goes. He goes home in tears because this beautiful yacht that he made has gone. And then a couple of days later, he's walking down the street and he, and he goes into, he sees his yacht kind of a bit grimy and a bit messed up, but it's in a uh, second-hand shop, well, pawn shop. And he goes in and he says, how much for the yacht? And, and, the, and they say whatever it was. And so he runs home, he, get, he breaks open his piggy bank, he, he, he's got just enough money, and he goes back and, and, he, and he throws the money down. He says, I'm taking that yacht. And, and he then goes outside. He doesn't go back to the river because he's learned his lesson. He just sits down outside that shop and a passerby goes by and he hears what he says. He sa- he's talking to the yacht and he says, I made you. I bought you at a great price. I own you double. God has made you. And through Jesus, he bought you at a great price. He owns you, but he loves you. And because of his creating you and because, he, because Jesus died for you, our lives are meant to reflect that. Our lives are meant to reflect that he owns us. Our lives are meant to reflect that we have been welcomed in and so therefore we welcome others. And our lives point to the reality that one day we will be gathered around God for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage and Lord, I pray that those of us here who call ourselves Christians would live lives that show it, that show that we are saved. Lord, Lord, I pray for those of us here who are unsure about whether we are saved or not. Lord, I pray that we would hear the call of God that says, hey, with all your brokenness and all your shame, you can come to me and find forgiveness and healing that you need. And we would come home running. Lord, help our lives to reflect that Jesus one day will come back. And therefore, we are under a different king. We are not slaves to our children or money or our jobs or our careers or whatever. We are loving servants of the king who sent his son to die for us. The king who loves to welcome broken people in and fix them. The king who loves to welcome sinners and forgive them. Amen.